Has your local footy club had a recent clangor or challenge? Well, Amy is here to help. The Amy Clangers for Good competition is back for 2024. This year, Amy are donating $10 for every clangor recorded during the AFL season with eight community clubs in the chance to win up to $15,000. If you want your club to go into the running in 100 words or less, tell us how Amy can help your club bounce back from a recent challenge. Enter now at amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. That's amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. T's and C's apply. Cobram Estate is the most awarded Australian extra virgin olive oil. Let it be the hero when entertaining family and friends. Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil is fresh and full of flavour. Perfect for roasting, frying, baking, dressing salads and for dipping bread. Make your food taste even better with a little help from Cobram Estate. Premium quality, great tasting and a versatile, healthy alternative. Buy in store at all major retailers. G'day, guys. Welcome back to Dylan Friends. This week on the show, one of the world's most renowned big wave surfers and Australia's own Mark Matthews. Mark has an unbelievable story. He grew up in Maroubra, 10K southeast from Sydney. As many of you would know, Maroubra was made pretty famous back in the early 2000s from the Bra Boys, in which Mark was a massive part of. He spoke about his journey growing up in a pretty tough neighbourhood, pushing the limits in and out of the water, and how he came to surf some of the biggest waves in the world. He talks in depth of a massive moment in his life where he almost died surfing Shipstern's Bluff in Tasmania, which took a massive toll on his health and confidence. The way he got himself back to his best is nothing short of amazing, in which he developed a heap of incredible techniques to challenge your thoughts. I bloody love this chat with Mark, and I'm sure you will too. He's an absolute superstar and cannot thank him enough for coming on the show. If you enjoy this app and all the others, please don't forget to follow on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really does help a lot. And last but not least, a big, big thank you to Bloke in a Bar for all the love and ongoing support. Get in store and grab yourself a slab to share with your mates. Head to blokeinabar.com to check your nearest stockist. The link will also be in the show notes. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends Podcast. In many ways, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears. 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 Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to the yeah. Olympics? They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How this is for meditating? It's like, <laughs> we had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Mark Matthews, it's an honour, it's a pleasure, and it's an absolute privilege to have you on, Dylan Friends, mate. This has been a long time in the making, and uh, yeah, it's an honour to have you on the show. Mate, I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, I, I honestly, I started this show probably about three years ago, and I put down like a bucket list of guests, and I kid you not, you're in my top five um, people that I- Come I, on, I, mate, you say that to I everyone. Honestly, sure. people would know, I do not say this to everyone, I put you on the list, and it's taken me- a long time. The amount of times I've DM'd you on Instagram, shit myself, unsent it, and then waited like <laughs> months on months on end just to tee this up. And I thought, you know what, Dill, fuck it. You're nearly at 100 eps. It's time to get the big dog on the show and, and hear the story, mate. So, uh, yeah, in all seriousness. All your other guests are just listening to this and just going, can't believe I wasn't in the top they five. Are, I'll take it back. They, they were just uh, the, the prequel to what's about to be a fantastic show. Um, mate, <laughs> oh, we'll see. we will. <laughs> hey, you are one of the biggest big wave surfers, most renowned big wave surfers in the world. Um, firstly, how does that even become a thing? When does that happen? How did you start this? When did the dream start? Oh man, it's a, it's a long story. <laughs> I, I think if I shaved it down, it would, it would be, I love surfing growing up. Like absolutely loved it. My, my family surfed, my dad, my mum rode a bodyboard, my sister surfed. So I grew up surfing and um, I loved it so much. Like every other kid, I wanted it to be my job. And, and I also hated working equally as much. So <laughs> it was like, I wanted to make a career out of it and I just, I wasn't good enough to be a competitive world tour surfer and, and compete for a world title. And that I kind of came to that realization probably when I was about sort of around 17, like 16, 17. And um, at, at that point I wasn't really renowned big wave surfer. You know, I did, I, I was usually the more scared kid when I was growing up compared to other, other surfers or other kids that I was surfing with. So it wasn't a natural thing for me to go, oh, I can be a big wave surfer. But it was more just, I was desperate to, to make a career out of the sport that I loved, that I just pushed myself to surf bigger and bigger waves because that was the road that I could see to where I could get a surfing career because I wasn't good enough to, to compete 
um, I could do it if I I could surf the waves that no one else wanted to surf. There was a career in that. <laughs> so it was just like, for me, the learning journey is more than able to uh, deal with uh, fear and, and overcome that fear so I can push myself to surf those waves. It's incredible knowing that now, I suppose, you know, I've done so much research. I know I, I would like to think I know a lot about you and early in your journey to hear that your mum had to come and save you from out the back of the surf to now becoming, you know, hearing what you're saying now, saying you just wanted to push yourself to surf the biggest waves possible. Like at a time back then, what, what was holding you back? Like as a, as a young kid uh, growing up in, you know, Eastern Sydney and in, in, sorry, South, uh, Southeastern Sydney, Maroubra, um, you know, uh, how does that even transpire, I suppose, to, to getting to where you are now? Yeah, what was holding me back? I don't know. It's, it's usually a multiple of factors. Like there, there has to be some some genetic things that, that are built into you when you're born around risk-taking and stuff. And and I just don't think I was ever that real risk-taking kid. Um, uh, like that on top of a, a couple of scary moments in the surf when I was young. Like I have a real clear one when I was probably, oh, I would have been – 11 years old of, of just getting held underwater by, by a wave that, and it held me down for long enough to be like, Oh my God, I'm not going to come back up. And that kind of like, kind of scarred me. And, uh, um, yeah. And then, and then those different things just made me apprehensive about surfing big waves. I still love surfing, but I didn't necessarily want to go out and surf huge waves, but, um, it was 2001 where, where I, fell in love with surfing big waves and it was just a, a multi multitude of factors that got me there. It was like at the time I was working down in Circular Quay in a bar making coffees, cocktails, like my surfing, my dream of being a professional surfer was pretty much fading out. Like it was, it was gone. I was about to go back and, and look to start studying or, or what other career path I could take. Um, like I would have been 19, 20 at the time, like a year out of school and and then I got, I get a call from a guy from track surfing magazine, the editor, and he invited me to come on a, a surf trip for the magazine down to Tasmania. And at that point in time, like I was a no one in surfing. Like I couldn't even believe that the editor of track surfing magazine was ringing me. And, um, I, I was kind of in my head, I was like, well, why is this guy ringing me? And, th- and I found out actually down the track that he'd probably rung about 30 or 40 other surfers before he got down to my name at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> and, and it was because where they wanted us to go and surf and the wave was absolutely terrifying and, and no one wanted to go down and surf it. Uh, but for me, it was like, okay, if I say no to this, my career is done 100%. I'm never going to get this chance again. So I, I just said yes to it. And I ended up down in Tasmania surfing a wave called Shipstones Bluff for the first time. And just because of a few different things, like I was on that day out in those waves, I was just more motivated than I'd ever been. One of the things was actually my, my mum was kind of uh, pretty sick at the time and she hadn't been able to work for a, uh, probably two months straight and I was living with her at the time and, and we didn't know what was wrong with her. So in my head, it was like, like from this point, like if she doesn't get better, I got to take care of her. And, and just having that in the back of my head, when I went down to Tasmania, it was like in that moment, it was that extra little bit of push that got me to swing around on a couple of waves that were huge and then I wiped out on them, like the first ones that were the biggest waves, biggest, scariest waves that I'd surfed to date. I wiped out on the first two, but I came straight up without a scratch on me. And I was kind of like, hold on a minute, I can actually handle this. And then I went on to surf a bunch of massive waves that day. And from that one trip, the photos and the footage and everything went all around the world. And I got my first big surfing sponsorships because of that. And, and to me, it was like, Oh, hold on a minute. This is how I can make money out of surfing. It's it's find the new huge big wave that everyone wants to see photos of people surfing. The magazines want it, the TV channels want it, and that's that can be my route to surfing. It was just then I had to to figure out how to deal with all that anxiety and fear that went arm in arm with with chasing massive wo- waves around the world. 
constantly thinking you're going to drown all the time and wiping out and the injuries and all that other stuff and to be able to keep my career going. You know? It's it's incredible, man. And, and it gives me goosebumps even thinking about it. But I think the one thing you said there was when you're talking about your mum and she was sick and, and it was like you didn't have a choice, like you had to succeed. And I think that's something that really – I respect about you and, and knowing your story of, of growing up in Maroubra with with your mates and, and pushing each other graduate like you know all, to all these risk taking behaviors that you did. It's like you got to a stage where you actually didn't have a choice to, but to succeed. And I suppose the question in that is like, how much growing up in Maroubra in this surf community, hanging around with your mates that you had, actually helped you get to where you want to be? I was massive. I mean, like, it's not like I didn't have a choice. I definitely had a choice, but it was just those different factors made me more motivated than I would have been. Like you always kind of got a choice, but there was just enough there to push that pushed me harder than, than what I'd been pushed before. Um, yeah. And then growing up in Maroubra, I, I grew up with Kobe Abaddon. Like I, f- I followed him around like little kid was five years older than me he had a career as a professional surfer. Like that's what made me really want it because I just saw the lifestyle that he was living. Like, and when you're young, I was like 14, 15 years old and he's driving around in the coolest, like $100,000 car. (laughs) He's got the hottest girlfriend. He's got all this money he can spend and travel and fly to Indonesia. I'm just like, I want that. I want that so bad. And then, and he was one of the craziest uh, big wave surfers on the planet. You know, like he was still a, an amazing competitive surfer because so he wasn't necessarily making career from big wave surfing at that point, but that he, he was so fearless in the ocean that that just being around that helped me see what was possible out in the surf. Like, I, and then I started to eventually get to the point, like I would train as hard as him. I would be as fit as him. I'd be as strong as him. And then, so in my head, I was like, well, if he's not dying on the waves that he's riding, then I can ride them too and not die, you know, like, and that was my, my mentality. Just on the, the growing up in Maroubra and I suppose around these guys like Kobe and, and one of your mates, Richie Vass, and, and there's so many others that we can talk about now, but like what, what makes a surfing community like that so tribal? Like, you know, I grew up in the city and was always so envious of, of like beach towns and just like this community, this hub that it, it is like locals only. And, and, and watching Maroubra and, and hearing about these stories, like that's what Maroubra was like. It was, it was a community that was just so tight-knit and really like stuck together and pushed each other. Yeah, I think all beaches are like that, like surf spots. There's always like local surfers who surf that spot regularly and, and they become a tribe and you form bonds and friendships with them just based on your mutual love for surfing at a specific location like that. That happens all around the world, like everywhere. And then you have like board riders clubs. So you surf in a, in a club and you compete against other beaches clubs. So even in that you're competing together. So, so in a sense, you're also like a team. So it's like, there's that competitive nature. I think what Maroubra had that um, like other places have this, but it maybe had it more, more so than others is it was like an inner city suburb. And there was a huge amount of like housing commission right on the beach at Maroubra. So it was real blue collar, like a sort of that, that lower class, um, like when, it, like an economically lower class uh, a population of people. And, and so there was a, a, a huge generation of kids growing up in the housing commissions who had like pretty dog shit family lives, like, like, junky parents or like violent parents or like, like they were growing up in, in shit environment. And I think that added to the sort of brotherhood of the surfing community because those kids could escape what they were growing up in at home and all that shit at home. And then they would see like, they didn't have the family at home. Like they didn't even like their family, a lot of these kids. And so they saw like our friendships as their family. And I think that just creates a tighter, a tighter bond, you know, between, um, between everyone down there. But, and then, and that makes it really attractive to more kids coming from those type of homes because they see that. And it's like, of course, if you're a young kid and you have dog shit parents, like that treat you like shit, 
you would love to be part of something like that. Like that's a family that you're missing out on, you know? And I think that's what made the bond really, really tight. And, but in saying that, if you take, you know, like a hundred young boys growing up in that environment with those shit parents, it's like, you're going to get some rough kids. Like that's kind of, they don't survive those households without becoming like rough. And, and that's kind of where that, that sort of tough nature and that rough mentality probably came from within that surfing community at, at Maroubra. And, um, I mean, there's good things that go with that and, and bad things. So like for me, it was amazing because it, it, it taught me to be tougher and stronger and braver and more courageous in the surf, you know, and that helped me to get a career from surfing. But when you take that, that mentality where it's like, fear is a weakness and and you should never back down from anything like in the surf that's awesome but you take that into the street as a young a young boy growing up in a in a inner city sort of suburban community where there's there's all that macho aggression on the street that's a recipe for disaster you know and that's you that's where all the sort of the trouble went hand in hand with it well that's the thing man as well isn't it like i i think that's such an integral part of your story and i i've reflected on this in my own journey like growing up the mates that i hang around with like you are who you surround yourself with and you pick up tendencies you push each other you do all these things and if you're surrounding yourself with good people you know you do good things and i think with your story especially like you've you know, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but from my perspective, like you've been successful because you've grown up with these people around you that you've just pushed each other and consistently pushed the boundaries. Like your best mate, Richie Vass, he's, he's a UFC fighter. You guys continually push each other to do the right thing and, and further your careers. But as you said as well, if you don't harness that and use it as just a positive, it also, it also can become a negative off you know, the sporting arena as well and in your life. Oh, 100%. It completely polarizes. It's like when you take that kind of drive and, and affinity for, for doing fearless things and you, and you channel it positively, like that can change kids' lives, like massively. Like if you teach a kid who's come from a shit home and, and just like life sucks, if, you, if you're like, and, and they're like poor as shit compared to everyone else around them, but if you teach them, that they have this friendship group, that they should be proud of who they are, where they're from, that they shouldn't back down in the face of, of anything, that they should strive hard to, to break a barrier. Like that all sounds like a, a fucking Anthony Robbins talk, right? <laughs> like that's, that's exactly what you should be yeah. teaching a kid, but it has to be in the right context, you know? And it just like kind of spilled over in different like periods of time into bad context, you know, like, so if you put that context into chasing a career uh, or growing a business, like they're, they're the, you can see transitions of guys that I grew up with that, that um, started a trade, worked hard in a trade, like come from the ship family, started a trade, worked hard in the trade and now have their own business. And they're multimillionaires because of that, like mental framework applied the to hard work, you know? Yeah. Um, but then, and then you apply that to sport and then you've got all like these sporting successes, like, like John Sutton, he's like the captain of the bunnies. You got Rennie Matua who played for Australia in rugby league. Like you've got all these amazing sports successes as well. But then <clears throat> when you apply that mentality to, to the, the, the vices that teenagers pick up, whether it's violence on the street, whether it's drugs, like you, you apply a fearless attitude to taking drugs like it's just like a abs. It doesn't get any worse than that. So it's kind of like and, but that's what happened. Like and yeah. it's never going to be a hundred percent positive, and it, it kind of just fractures. Like you see the, the 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 amazingly good things about it, and then the amazingly bad things about it. And I was yeah. just lucky in a lot of situations that I got away with making a lot of bad mistakes when I was young, and and realized that like. If I keep doing this, I'm one way. It's either I'm going to die or go to jail. That like that's yeah. the road if I go that way, and then this is the road if I go the other way. But a lot of like, and I was, and it was luck in a lot of moments, you know. Whereas a lot of other young guys aren't lucky in those moments. Yeah. Oh, mate, it's it's terribly frightening, and I think you summed it up incredibly. Like our biggest strengths 
are also our biggest weaknesses. Like what makes you tick and what makes you the best you are is also your downfall and can catch you up, but it's identifying where to put your energy. Exactly like you said, I've had to realize that the hard way, probably not on as, as an extreme level, but like it's, it's not what happens, it's how we react to it, I suppose. And, and what happened to you in those situations, you use that as a positive. And as you said, you get that opportunity to go to ship sterns. Things start following your way. You make the choice, um, even though, you, as you said, you did have other choices, but you make that choice to start investing, going hard at a surfing career. What transpires from this? Like after that first time when you actually start realizing, fuck, this can actually be my career, a big wave surfer. How do you then take the next step to making it a consistent thing? I, it w- it's all about, for me, I was never super talented surfer. So it was like on one hand, I had to learn how to manage the fear and the stress and the anxiety to be able to motivate myself to surf the big waves, surf them consistently, and then to pick up any sort of lack of of talent where there were better surfers out there. I had to learn the business aspect of, of being a professional surfer and, and why companies want to give me money. Like, why would they give me money? And, and I, so I just made it a point to, to be savvy within the, the surfing industry and the business aspect of it and learn everything about it so that I'm more valuable to, to a company than another more talented surfer might be. So I, I had to learn all of that stuff. And, and all those two different things, like being able to manage the fear helped me sort of sustain motivation a, across a long period but then learning all the other skills outside of actually riding a wave um, within the business that, that made me more, more sort of valuable to sponsors across a longer period. And I think like it's those combination of those two things that, that helped me get a career when, when the reality is like based on my talent, I probably didn't deserve the career that I had, you know, like not even close. There was so many other better surfers out there than me that, that kind of, they could have done what I, I did easy. Well, we, we always like to say it uh, through this show, but you're not a businessman. You are a business man. Yeah, and exactly. that's, that's the show that we like to say, because how, like, how does that actually transpire? Like you are a surfer, like, because like I've played football, you sort of work out at least, but you go, you get paid, but it's not like that in surfing. Like from my understanding, is it, you have to like fund your own trips. You have to get a cameraman to come with you, source these waves, get all the content available, then take that to sponsors and say, hey, this is what I did. Can you sponsor me? Like it's a real hustle. Like you've actually got to like put in the work, invest money, invest time, and and hopefully it works out to, to be able to make a living off it. Yeah, that that's exactly it. That's kind of the model, but there's different variations of, of how it plays out. If you sign with a certain big company like a Billabong or a Rip Curl, you sign the contract with them and then they do all that for you. They just say, we want you to go here, here and here, and we're going to do everything else to promote you, you know? But when you do that, it's like your destiny is then in their hands, you know? And if they then see another young kid coming up, then they push you to the side and they use that person, you know? And, and you have way less control with what, you know, with the profile that's being created. They might say to you, we're going to sign you up, but we're only going to use you in, we don't, we're not going to pay you to go to this big swell or this big swell or this big swell because we just want you on this one. That's what fits our our program and the amount of money we want to pay you. So I, I always just wanted to do everything myself and then just show the value to the, the company and get paid the money off the sponsors, but I'll take care of the rest. So I had way more control in what I was going to be doing throughout a year because I, I knew that it was all based on on your profile, right, and and your ability to create content which markets your sponsor's product, you know. And <clears throat> so I knew that I wanted to be on every single big swell and so I would go into debt, you know, some years where I wasn't getting paid all that much from sponsors to be at every swell, to have all the cameras there, to be creating the profile, getting the footage, getting the content, going out into the media. And, and I'd invest like an extra, you know, 30 grand that I didn't have. So I'd be down 30 or 50 grand for the year, but then that would pay, <clears throat> that I would get that back on the next sponsorship deal the following year or the year after. So it was just a, and a constant investment in building the profile that made you marketable for, for companies. And, and was there a time when that didn't have to happen? Was there a time when after all that investment, all that work you put in, 
like you signed with O'Neill. After that, was there a time where you were like, sweet, I'm just a, a pro surfer now, I can do it, a pro big wave surfer now, I can do whatever I want? Or because you'd use that mindset and that hustle mindset to get to where you needed to be, it's like you just didn't change it and you just kept doing the same thing? Yeah, I, I hit a period when I was around sort of late, late 20s, early 30s, yeah, coming into mid 30s, because where I was kind of like finally earning good amount of money where I could save some money, you know, like, so I could have like sat back and rested there and, and, you know, taken the foot off the pedal and, and saved my money and just did what I was doing. But in my head, I was like, I was never earning the type of money where I wouldn't have to work after surfing, like not even close, mm. like not, not, not even in, in that ballpark. So I always knew that it was never going to last forever. And, and my contracts were only ever a year two years, max sort of three years long. So I was always thinking about the next sponsorship after this contract was gone or the next, you know, negotiation based on this sponsor. And so I was just constantly always thinking about that. And I was always imagining the day where I was, wasn't going to get paid for surfing and what I was going to do. And then that led me down the, the, the path of, of professional speaking and keynote speaking and, it was, it was valuable to, cause I learned that 10 years ago, I started to do that. So for 10 years while I was still surfing professionally, I was doing that on the side. And then I, I realized the value of like learning the skills of communication and then how valuable that is in the surfing world, you know, as well. So they both kind of went hand in hand there. It's huge, man. Hey, um, let's talk about a, a, one of, you know, a really big, uh, I suppose, crucible moment in your life, which was at Chip Stearns, um, we are mentioning it earlier, but this wave, for, for people that don't know it, off off the coast of Tasmania, one of the scariest waves I've ever seen. Like, it's got somehow like a double lip. Like, how does that even happen? Do we know, like, the, the science around that? Like, why is that wave so disformed? Um, what makes it real spectacular and what makes most waves spectacular is when it comes out of really deep water and then breaks onto a really shallow reef. And then I think why why Shipstones is extra spectacular is that the reef that it's breaking out on is so uneven that when the water pulls out towards the wave, it it it's like it's hitting this uneven bottom and then making like these uh, rapids, like kind of like water, like river rapids in the wave as it's breaking, and that's what makes it like this like turn into this sort of mutated spectacular looking beast of a wave, which, um, I mean, it's fun to ride when you make it sucks when you wipe out. But in, in what I do, the more spectacular looking the wave is, the, the better the content is and the more valuable the content is. Well, mate, let's go back to that, you know, really big day that probably changed a lot of things for you in your journey of surfing, um, at ship stands, if you're happy to, to talk about it. Um, there was a, a, a big day out there where you went out with a couple of friends and um, from more towards as well. I think it was Steve Irwin's, one of the anniversary of Steve Irwin's passings. You went out there to celebrate with, with a couple of mates and um, had a pretty, pretty big stack out there that sort of changed, I suppose, your perspective of surfing and, and the course of your, your career at that stage. Yeah, the, the day I think it was 2006 or seven when I was surfing Shipstones and I had the first really scary wipeout that I that I had had up until that point like I have I've had different moments in my career that kind of sort of um remind me that how dangerous what I'm doing is and how dangerous it is to get become overconfident in the ocean we were at chipstones and it was massive like 20 foot plus um and it was it just so happened that we Steve Irwin had passed away in the weeks lead up to that and we thought it'd be cool to pay tribute to him and and ride ride a couple of massive waves because he was a passionate surfer, but holding on to a big blow up crocodile. And um, I was down there with Richie and and the, some of the photos of that turned out so amazing and it was awesome and it was all successful on that front. But um, then I tried to uh, capture some point of view footage of this kind of before GoPros were created, and and I had a. Um, uh, a camera strapped to my waist, the body of a camera, and then the lens of the camera strapped to a helmet on my head to, that had the lens so we could capture what it looked like to get barreled at Shipstone. And I just picked a bad wave, wiped out, and got smashed into the reef. 
and I got knocked unconscious um, just for a moment underwater. And, and I, I remember like this real clear recollection of, of waking up but not knowing what was going on and just being in this really cold, dark place and, and just having no idea what was going on just for a moment of time. And then I kind of broke the surface of the water as I was coming up and saw the big cliff of, of Shipstone's Bluff. And then I realized like where I was and what was happening. And then this pain just set in down, down my neck, down my spine and pins and needles down into my arms. And I was just like, Oh no, what have I done? Um, Richie and the boys came in and, and rescued me and pulled me up onto the boat. And I was just screaming in pain because my neck was so sore. And I, I was sure I'd broken my neck, not to the point where I was, paralyzed because I could move everything but the the nerve pain was so bad and so they they like braced me on the boat and put put like wrapped towels and stuff around my neck so nothing would move just that everyone was terrified that you know as we were going back in the boat over these 20 foot swells um that would bounce and then and then that would like end up doing something to my spinal cord you know like so it was so scary this like two hour ride back to to land um, anyway, eventually I got back to land, went in an ambulance to the hospital and it probably took about eight hours before I got x-ray results back of what was going on. And I remember being so nervous. I thought my career was finished. I remember, I think it was around that time when Andrew Johns, a rugby league player had had a neck injury that kind of stopped his career. And I had that in the back of my head that that was going to, that was going to be me. Like, I was going to be fine to walk around, but the doctor was about to walk in and tell me that you can't surf again because if you wipe out, you, you'll become a quadriplegic. And I thought for sure, I spent like eight hours on the on the way to the hospital and getting the results just thinking that that's what was going to happen. And then the doctor walks in, x-ray results in his hand, looks up at me and he's just like, mate, you are one lucky bastard. <laughs> he said, there's no serious spinal cord damage. Like you've compressed, your spine's compressed on the nerves. That's why you got so much pain. Fuck. But he's like, you're going to recover. No troubles. Like w within a month's time, you'll be back to normal. He goes, you'll, you'll probably be back down here for the next big swell at Shipstone surfing again. I was like, I wasn't down there for the next swell. All the one after that, all the one after that. I mean, my neck recovered quick. Like physically I was fine, just like he said, within a month, six weeks, and I was surfing again. But mentally, whoa, it was a whole nother story. Like I was so rattled by what happened that I was just like terrified to go out and surf big waves again. Um, and it took me probably, I don't know, eight, a year or 18 months to get back to being full confidence. And um, yeah, that was a tough journey. Even on that though, Mark, like, is it true that you actually randomly that – session had a helmet on just for that wave yeah the only reason it's the first time i've ever worn a helmet and it was because the lens of the camera that we were using that was strapped to my body like so the big body of the camera was strapped to my waist and then the lens was stuck to the helmet and um that's the only reason i've ever worn a helmet and there was a massive hole like 10 centimeter diameter sort of hole in the helmet where i'd hit the reef so if i had to hit the reef without the helmet my skull would probably have that big hole in it. In saying that, kind of the helmet made me wipe out a bit. Like it was just so awkward to <laughs> yeah, surf in yeah. it and I had the camera on. So if I wasn't doing that, I probably wouldn't have wiped out on the wave. Yeah, there's two ways of looking at it. Speaking of that that mental journey, I suppose, then getting back to the top of your game, um, I, I can't imagine how tough that would have been. For one, being a big wave surfer scary enough. Uh, two, having a wipeout like that. What were some of these demons like? Was it was it something that you could actually get back in the water or was it more like you were just, when you were taking off on a wave, was it like nightmares? Was it just self-doubt? Like what sort of things were you sort of going through at that stage to actually overcome and get back in the water? Uh, the, the, the main situation that was giving me so much trouble, like I would be back surfing fine and I'd be training and I'd be the fittest I've been, like doing all the preparation stuff for the next big swell. But then as soon as I would go online, like I go online every morning and check the swell forecast to see what's happening around the world. And as soon as I would check the swell forecast on any given morning 
and see that I was going to be surfing massive waves again in a week's time, like from that moment, like the reality that I was headed back to big waves, like that would just, just trigger the anxiety. And it was like then in that whole next week, it, I just have a constant stream of thoughts in my head about all the things that were going to go wrong in a week's time when I, when I surfed and I just play all these wipeouts um, through my head. And then at night I'd be, be dreaming about, I'd be waking up in the middle of the night, like in cold sweats thinking I was like stuck in a wheelchair. Cause I just wasn't lucky this time. And it would just like play nonstop. And then like, I didn't want to lose my career. So I, I kind of had to go to these swells, but by the time I turn up on the day of the swell to surf, I was physically exhausted like I off more often than not I would actually have the like flu-like symptoms like I'd have aches and pains I'd have like either like sore throat or like just like I had the flu like I was full-on sick on the day that I would have to surf and and I realized that that was happening because of, of that mental stress and anxiety that I was having for an entire week lead up before, I, before I'd surf. So I, I'd go through so many wipeouts in my head that by the time I got to surf, it was, it was like my body had been through the wipeouts physically before I'd even put a foot in the water. So I'm, I'm absolutely exhausted just from thinking all these things. And, and it was actually one of the best lessons for me in, in dealing with sort of stress and fear was how powerful like those thoughts are in your head and everyone has them. Like you mentally forecast what could possibly go wrong so that you can adjust what you're doing and not die. Like that's just a survival mechanism in your brain. And I realized how, how valuable it was then because it got to a point where I, I just couldn't turn up on the day and surf be, or, or actually perform. Like I could still surf, but I wouldn't be uh, have enough energy to go out and, and put on a good performance. <clears throat> so I went to see uh, a guy called Nam Baldwin, who's a, a personal trainer, coach, trains like a lot of the top uh, surfers, trains Olympic athletes. Like he's a freak trainer. He has a background in free diving. Um, and he showed me when I went to see him exactly like the effect those thoughts were having on me. So he, he, plug me into like a heart rate variability monitor and then he would get me to imagine wiping out or, or replay the wipeouts that I'd had in my head and then he'd show me what that was doing to my heart which is a pretty good representation of your nervous system you know and um and then he would just give me all these different techniques to basically break the connection from the the anxious thoughts and their effect on your physical body. So it's like there's all these different mental hacks and techniques to just sever that connection so you, your body's not having a physical response. Like so the, you, you think the thought, you dwell on it for too long, it creates an emotional response, and the emotional response your body's having is taxing on you physically, right? So he gave me just these all these simple techniques to just break that. And, and I mean, that's what now when, when people mention mindfulness techniques or meditation, that's basically what, what you're doing. You're bringing yourself into the present moment. So you're not dwelling on the thoughts, negative thoughts about the future or the past. And one, one technique that was uh, really valuable was one called the work. It's, it was from a book written by an author named Byron Katie. I can't remember the name of the book, but if you Google online, it's called The Work. Um, and she has a website that kind of takes you through the process and it's so valuable. And what it would do was, it was just a process where you would question the thoughts and the th- and the validity of those thoughts. And by doing it, it would break that connection. So, and there's like four questions. I would always stop and I, I'd always write them down. I found it way more powerful to write it down rather than try and do it in your head because you kind of can't beat, your brain and and how scared your brain gets like it it justifies your fears at the the speed of light like that's why it's real good to write things down like get it out of your head and I would just answer these questions like what is the thought that you're having so I'd write a real descriptive thing about the thoughts that I was having and then I was like uh is that thought true 
Like, and it's like, well, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I could turn up on the day to surf and the weather conditions could be wrong. So I might not even end up surfing. So it's not necessarily that that thought's even true, like whether it's going to definitely happen or not. So you're like, no, this thought's not real or it's not true. Like I can't be sure. And then it's like, when you think the thought, how does it make you feel? So I just play the thought out in my head and then I feel the tension. Like you feel like when you, when you have those anxious thoughts, you can, the emotional response, you can tell the tension in your body. It's like, yeah, your shoulders lift, you know, like you, everyone gets sore neck when they're nervous or been stressed out. Cause you, you're constantly lifting up your shoulders in, into your ears all the time. Um, you can feel your heart rate elevate a little bit. You can see different things like tension in your body. You might grip, grip your hands. You, you might, uh, grip your toes into the ground. Like you might furrow your brow. Like there's all these different tension responses based on on the way you're thinking and so I would notice all these and I'd write them all down so this is how it's making me feel making me anxious nervous I can notice that I'd feel all this tension and then it's like the last question which is where it's kind of all the 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 powerful part of it's like okay so let go of the thought and without that thought so stop thinking about it for a moment how do you feel if you don't think about it and it's like as soon as you do that you just, your whole body relaxes. Like, it's just like, oh, like a full on relaxation moment. Cause you were just dwelling on the thought and then you purposely let go of it. And it's just the, the confidence just creeps back into your body and the energy creeps back into your body. And, and that, that sort of like, uh, it's like all that tension just evaporates. And, and that's where you just like, I, I did that over and over and over and over again. Like I, I had, workbooks full of the times I was writing that shit out in my head just to constantly break the connection over and over again. Cause I mean, it comes straight back, like within sort of an hour's time, you start thinking about it again, but then exactly. you got to do it again. But the more I did it, the less I'd have the thoughts, you know, or the less, not even the less I'd have the thoughts, but it was like the less, less powerful the effect was that those thoughts had on me. And then I started to turn up on the day of swells just with a little bit more energy each time. Like, and when I had more energy, I'd have more confidence and I'd surf better. And then I just built it up like across 18 months and I just felt better and better and better and better. And that, that was like one of the kind of mental hack ways of um, managing that anxiety that went along with, um, with surfing big waves. And it's just like learning that because of that wipeout helped me heaps because before I had that wipeout, I still had the the stress and the anxiety, like the nerves of going to surf big waves, but I'd just keep pushing through it. I'd just push through, push through, push through, push through. And that will but that just wore me down. Like it was I it, it was too taxing and it didn't need to be as taxing as it was. It was like you you're creating a hundred extra wipeouts every day that you're not even you don't need to be going through, you know, like that's what anxiety is doing to you or what stress is doing to you. So yeah, that was a big learning curve for me. It helped me perform after that way better. Like just because I had more energy after that. I absolutely love that, man. I've literally just like written that down, like challenge your thoughts, ask if it's true. How does it make you feel? Who would you be without that thought is like, so, like I even felt like relaxed even thinking about that, but I think the goal yeah, and people can yeah. do it. Like, do, just Google the work, the work. I th- I'm pretty sure that website's still there. It's, it was 10 years ago that I saw it, but it gets you to do it. And like the best example, everyday example that, that I, I sometimes mention to people is when you have, like, say you're having an argument with your partner, right? And, and so, so say you've kind of like, you might've done something wrong. Like you might be running late or you've forgotten to pick up the shopping and, you, and you're driving home and the whole way you're driving home. Like, so say for half an hour, you're driving home in traffic, you're imagining your partner's response to what's going on. And you're just imagining them getting angry and furious at you. And like the conflict that you're going to have when you walk in the door and the excuses that you're going to need to give. And that whole drive home, you're like anxious and tense, Right. And then who knows, you might walk in the door and, and your partner just won 10 grand on a lottery ticket and they don't give a shit that you didn't pick up the, the shopping, you know, like it's like, 
it's it does it's not necessarily real the thoughts in your head, but they're having a real effect because you're forecasting what might happen. And sure. if the thoughts about what might happen aren't going to change your actions in the moment, then they're useless. You know, like th- those negative thoughts are valuable if they force you to prepare more or to take a different course of action. But if they're just there and you're not doing anything different, then they're basically useless. It, it comes back to that like emotion versus logic is basically is what, what we're explaining, I think, now. Like emotion versus logic, take that time to anal- uh, analyse the situation and actually think logically about it. And as you said, that's what anxiety does. It's emotional. It makes you react on things like straight away. I think the real gold though, like from that I really picked up on from what you said that has been massive for me is like, you know, we all have these situations. We all know what it's like to have anxiety, have fear of something. But the one thing I know I need to get better at personally is like creating that trigger as a habit. Like you said, then it's like, you don't do this. uh, You don't challenge your thoughts once and like, it just creates it and, becomes normal again you've got to challenge it 10 20 30 100 200 500 times like you said you had four books worth of things that make you to get to that stage it's like an 18 month journey it's like training your brain to get out of that habit and get back into the habit of rationalizing your thoughts a bit more and i suppose like that was a goal that that i got out of it from your point of view it's like fuck i go yeah but i do this but i don't trigger it consistently enough to make it a habit so that i don't have those thoughts anymore yeah, well, if you, that's why writing it down so good. So at the at the end of the day or at the end of the week, you can you can't hide. It's like, did you do it or didn't you do it? You can see if you wrote it down. Like, you can imagine you're doing it in your head, but I guarantee it's nowhere near as effective. I I, I came across a really good technique just a few years ago to that exact point that you're making. Like you do, like to get yourself to do these different changes and form these different habits. And I can't remember where I came across it, but it's called habit stacking. And it's where you take like the new positive lifestyle habits that you want to implement and you stack them on top of your primary habits. So your primary habits are, are like all the different things that you do every day. Like you might, wake up every morning, have a coffee, shower, brush your teeth, commute to work, have lunch, like all these things that you do day in, day out, all the time, no matter what, like they're built into you. They're, they're your habitual patterns, your primary habits. So you just take the positive lifestyle habits. So what we've been discussing is doing the work or questioning a negative thought that you might be having. So you take that technique and you piggyback it on top of what you're doing already. So <clears throat> it's like, you don't allow yourself to have a coffee tomorrow morning without writing down or questioning Mm. a negative thought that you might have in your head. So when you're drinking the coffee, you're writing it down and it's like you piggyback it on top of it. So you don't have to create new energy or or new amount of time to implement a, a positive lifestyle habit that you want to implement it. You just use the time that you already have like in those moments. And then it kind of, then it, then it, becomes habitual in that it's like you'll you know a year down the track be sitting down drinking your coffee and your brain will just like you won't even need to do the writing your brain will just like shift and like let go of some anxiety just because you've like trained it in those moments to to do that i love that yeah this, that's a pretty good technique i come across that a few years oh ago. mate we could talk about this all day i think uh even off <laughs> yeah. air, but like there's one that i've that for me has like so badly it's nearly an OCD that I've picked up on like I used to be really bad at like negative talk so I'd be like Mm. I'm not there like I I can't do this I'll never do that fuck this fuck that but I got in this habit of just like changing the words like I'm not there yet I'll be doing that soon you know like all those things that instead of saying I'm not doing it's like you positively spin it and now even when I'm talking to people and they say something I like correct it for them but like not to them but like in my head I'd like I wouldn't say it like that I'd say it like this um but you're right it's all about that just habitual stuff that you can just consistently keep doing keep doing because man it's evident evident that it worked for you because after this um you learn uh how to challenge your thoughts I suppose the surfing took care of itself and that's when you start doing some of the biggest things I think you went from being dropped from all your sponsors to then being signing a three-year deal with a new sponsor later that year yeah I signed I, I it was like 18 months later that I won my first Oakley Big Wave Award and then went on it to win like three consecutive years. And and off the back of that, I got all my biggest 
surfing sponsorships and I, like it wasn't just that but it was like it was an ability to manage your energy like that's what that technique's doing it's giving you energy back because you're not wasting it on thoughts that are unnecessary you know and like i said before it's like the clear distinction is that the thoughts of survival is a survival mechanism those negative thoughts and if they're going to prompt you to take different action they're valuable like cuz i'll still do it it's like if I think about I'm going down, back down to ship zones, I'm going to surf huge waves and I'm starting to have some of these negative thoughts, they may be because I'm not prepared properly and my team's not prepared for the swell we're about to uh, go and surf. So I have to take the preparation. Otherwise, it's in the hacks and doing the work and writing them down it won't stand a chance. Like you got to do the preparation. Like you know this from from playing footy. It's like you, you can like try all the different like hacks possible, but if you're not prepared, if you're not fit, if your team hasn't been training well, it's like then it's not going to work, you know. Like so I can think about, you know, wiping out, blacking out underwater and, and how terrifying that's going to be. So then – I've got to do the preparation that, that that thought is prompting me to do. So it's like, all right, I'm doing all the underwater training. I'm fit. I'm healthy. I'm, I'm working with my team and we're going to formulate a plan for when that happens or if it happens, exactly what we're going to do. So it's like, this is where, like when you pick me up and I'm unconscious, this is ex the boat that you're going to take me for. This is where the defibrillator is going to be if you need to, bring me back like this is how long the helicopter takes to get there this is where they can pick me up from this is how long it'll take to get to the hospital like and and when you formulate those plans based on the negative thoughts then it settles the negative thoughts mm. down and then whatever's left over with the negative thoughts then you use the techniques like the mental hack techniques the mindfulness techniques the the work like we were just talking about like but like i to make the distinction that you have to do the preparation that's like I feel like I have to mention that because often people are like, don't want to do the preparation because the preparation's hard. Because yeah. so you got to then think about the shit that can go wrong and and don't take the head in the sand approach and do that work, you know. And but so the hacks, the preparation's the foundation. The hacks are like the decoration. You know? yeah. I love that. That's when you say there around the the fear of uns the fear and the anxiety comes from uncertainty. But like yes. by making things certain. And by putting these things in place, like if I'd fucking rocked up today and not known anything I was going to talk about, I'd feel like absolute shit. But because I've fucking done my research, like I, I know what I want to talk to you about, like I feel just comfortable and then we just have a chat. Um, it can really be larger to anything. It's not just big surfing, I suppose. And that's the way I was trying, you know, like talking to big, you know, people like yourself, you can get nervous, but if you know you've put in the work to do it, I feel better about it. That's exactly, what you're saying is exactly it. Like all fear is uncertainty. Like it's all of it is every fear that you have is to do with uncertainty. It's like you don't know whether you're going to be successful or fail or, or whether people are going to like you or not like you, like you're going to live or you're going to die or you get, you know, like it's all uncertainty. So where you can build certainty in your life is how you unlift or, 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 or lift anxiety. Like, so it's, yeah, that's the, there's no more important thing than that. But then everything else, like all those different like I feel like there's an entire industry built around like, and you would know it, like the performance coaches and, and all, all the mindfulness injury, industry and all these different things. They're so valuable, but they're like 10% compared to 90% yep. of what preparation is. And I also feel like a lot of the time, like you've said, then we like in sporting environments, in professional environments, you focus on like what to do when shit hits a fan but like a lot of prep, a lot of stuff isn't focused on like getting yourself right so you don't hit the fan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you said that then. I suppose like a big, big thing about you and something that being a big wave surfer is like something that I'm so fascinated about. Fascinated about because I think surfing like has this connotation where people wouldn't understand it. You'd think people just rock up, they sleep in, they go surf, and that's just all they do. But like the fitness and the training that would go behind big wave surfing, I'm talking hypoxic sessions like underwater, like being able to, you know, uh, what's it, like level your um, ears and what, what's that called when you're like leveling your sinuses like underground, um, underwater, how much training goes into that? Like what sort of training are you doing 
Um, and even to give some insight, like if, you, if you're happy to, like how long like do you try and stay underwater for? Like what are you thinking about when you're underwater? How do you stay calm? Because like I've nearly fucking drowned before, man, and I was probably underwater for three seconds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the same for everyone. But it's like I, I need like – the the strength and fitness is one aspect so i've got to stay fit i've got to stay healthy and and i've got to be strong like so that's all your standard gym training the um the underwater training is like you've got to go through just this one period to retrain your brain your brain's panic response to running out of oxygen and, and you just do that by, by being down there over and over again and learning all the different sensations that, that your body goes through as it runs out of oxygen. Because often you'll, you'll panic when you're underwater or when you're, you're holding your breath at about the, oh, it wouldn't be a third of the way into your capacity. Like you'll, you'll feel pain in your chest and, and your brain will freak out and be like, I've got to get out of here, I'm going to die because that pain is represents running out of oxygen. But w- what the freedivers tell you is that, and what, what, what they teach you is that that pain in your chest is not necessary that you're running out of oxygen, it's that carbon dioxide's building up in your lungs. So you actually still have a lot of oxygen in there, but the carbon dioxide is creating the pain. But it's like when you know that, it's like, you can deal with that pain better. That's what breath, breath hold is about dealing with pain. Like free divers, it's, it's all their ability to deal with the pain of the carbon dioxide buildup. And, and so you got to kind of go through a, a training program that teaches you that. And then just straight away, like a good free diver taking you on a, like Nam Baldwin, if, if anyone wants to, to do a breath hold course, he does them all around the country. If you go and train with him, he'll get you from, if your breath holds like a, a minute underwater, he'd get you to three minutes in, in one go by taking you through the steps, teaching you the knowledge, and then drilling you through this, the skills and the preparation. So it's like, it's learning that so that, and then doing it over and over again so that you don't freak out every time you feel that pain from the carbon dioxide. And, and that's just, then you control that panic response. So then... Now that I've done that, I don't necessarily need to do that all the time because I've taught myself that. But now it's just about staying healthy and, and being fit, like aerobically fit enough and then um, and, and strong so the injuries don't come. Is, it, is there something specific, though, like when you're underwater, you try and think about? Because I know when, you know, the more you move, the more you panic the more air you're actually using of yourself. So is it literally just like rolling into a ball and just – go into your happy place like do you do you try and picture anything in particular is there something that you can sort of like escape and just go like all right fuck i'm gonna be here for a minute two minutes like what what's even the longest you've been underwater and and had to feel the way you have yeah it depends a lot on what safety equipment you have like if you have an inflatable vest on or something that's buoyant that's going to bring you to to the surface after a wipeout then it's all about it's like kind of switching off and relaxing and not fighting because when you when you fight especially when you kick your legs your legs use up a lot of oxygen so it's like it's it's maintaining relax don't fight don't panic and just allow the the vest to bring you to the top use your arms a little bit if you need but <clears throat> when you don't have inflation stuff on you have to be a, lo- a lot more alert so when when I wipe out I feel like it happens now naturally for me. So it's like if a wipeout's bad and it's a huge wave and I know it's bad, it's like right on the moment I'm about to panic, it's like my brain's trained to just relax because it knows that that's the only way I'm going to survive and the situation forces it to relax in a way because I've done the training beforehand. Um, Sometimes I'll use like a trigger where I'll like force myself to smile a little bit underwater and kind of relax myself. I know that other surfers like – will play out like a in their mind a different environment i think ross clark jones one of the best big wave serves in the world he while he's getting rolled around underwater would imagine being in a nightclub and having a hell fun time like that's what he did you know like to take him away from the fear but i think my brain now kind of just if it's a bad enough wipeout it will naturally just shift into relax mode because it knows that that's the only way i can survive and then, but then I have to stay alert enough to know where I am underwater. 
and whether or not the reef's closed, if I'm going to hit the reef, which way is up or down, and you're slightly f- moving and, and moving underwater to get away from the, what would you call them, like the, uh, the power pockets that drive you down f- deeper, like you want to just move across from them, and that's all like... It's kind of like uh, you got your eyes shut most of the time and, and you're just feeling where they're pulling you and you're just going against them and, and working your way to the surface. But it's um, it's just different if you've got safety gear on and off. But but that's where the safety takes it. You know, like being prepared and having enough, the safety equipment on, having people that you trust on the jet skis looking out for you, that helps you deal with a wipeout more than anything else. Mate, uh, to finish up, a couple tidbits. I'd love to know your favourite wave to surf, favourite place, and the scariest wave to surf. Well, I think we might know the answer to that one already. Ooh, um, I think they're the same. Uh, at the moment, I go in and out of different ways. Like, I was fascinated with Jaws uh, that breaks off Maui, or Piahi is the, the local name. Is That's probably the biggest barreling wave on planet Earth, and it's the pinnacle of of especially big wave paddle surfing. Um, and I, I was a fascination with that for, for a good five, six, seven years, like trying to figure it out every, every season in Hawaii. Um, and, and across the majority of my career, Shipstones Bluff on the Southeast corner of Tasmania has probably been, it's the wave that gave me my career, like kickstarted my career. It's a wave that I, I almost died at when I hit the reef. And, um, and it's, it's just a wave that I've fallen in love with and it's, I love it, but it's also one of the scarier waves on the planet. Um, for me, not that I've surfed in any of them, but one wave that actually scares the fuck out of me. As a kid, I watched the movie Billabong Odyssey like a lot. And I think there's obviously Jaws, which is, as you're saying, is off Maui, but is there another one called Mavericks or, that's in the middle of the ocean? Toto Santos, uh, it's called. So that breaks like, I don't know how many miles. Like you, you can't see land. So that's the scary thing for me is more like with the ones that I know they're probably even more dangerous because they're on reef, but the ones that are out in the middle of the ocean, like that, is, is there another fear factor there where you just go like, fuck, I am literally in the middle of the ocean right now. We're, we're quite far away from land for one, but two, I feel like deep sea ocean, like who knows what's around, like where you are. <laughs> Mate, those sharks swim into waist yeah. deep water, so yeah. it don't matter how far you're out. Okay, that's fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, I, like there's a lot of locations that I'm terrified of sharks at. Um, your proximity to to help and and a hospital is also another one that's scary for me. Just after the last injury I had, where I destroyed my knee hitting a reef. Now at the moment, surfing shallow waves with rock beds is the scariest thing for me to do at the moment. The safety equipment, the advances in the safety equipment and the inflatable vests that we can wear now, um, that takes out a lot of the fear in open ocean waves that where the danger is drowning. Like now that you have the vests on, you're pretty, pretty comfortable in, in huge open ocean waves, but um, hitting the reef to me now is the scariest. What's next for, for Mark Matthews uh, in, in the next phase of your life, mate? Uh, career-wise... Uh, I have more of a focus on public speaking now and um, sharing what I've learned about managing fear and stress and anxiety in the ocean with, with people in the corporate world or, or business owners or entrepreneurs. Like that's kind of my career now. I still surf and I still get paid to surf a bit, but my main focus is that. Um, on the surfing front, my the next big thing I'll be doing is competing in the Red Bull Cape Fear event back down at Shipstones Bluff where currently in in a waiting period now. So at any moment we'll get a forecast that looks good enough. The conditions are going to be right and we'll get three or four days notice to travel to Shipstones. And then it's kind of the country's best big wave surfers all compete down there in a, in a big swell. So that, that one's keeping me training a little bit at the moment. Um, so that's career surfing. And then I've got a two year old daughter who's my first kid. So she takes up the majority <laughs> of what time is left over. Mark, mate, it's been absolutely unbelievable to have a chat with you. As I said, man, it's been a bucket list chat that I've had for a long time. Um, did not disappoint. Not only was it uh, like an incredible story, but I just learned so much about, like you said, the fear of anxi- the fear and anxiety, managing uncertainty, being able to put those triggers in place. And I think, as you said, and you said it so perfectly, like making it habitual. It's not something that can be done once. It has to be done many, many times to then 
be able to overcome your biggest fears. So you've lived it, you've breathed it, my friend. And um, yeah, it's a real honor to, to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Dill, man. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. If, um, if anyone wants to hear the rest of, of my story from the ship's turns point onward, uh, Rebel just released a new documentary. It's called The Other Side of Fear. It's free. It's online. If you Google Mark Matthews and The Other Side of Fear, it tells the whole story of what I've gone through more recently over the last uh, four or five years. Mark, mate, uh, that is absolutely unbelievable. I, I couldn't top it. Um, it's been real. It's been good. It's been bloody incredible. Cannot thank you enough for your time again, my friend. And hopefully we can catch up soon in the future for a few uh, cold ones. I know you're a busy man, but uh, I've always got time. That'd be awesome, mate. <laughs> I'll let you know when I'm, I'm down in your, uh, in your neck of the woods again. Easy, and, uh, We'll catch up for sure. Thanks, mate. If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. An exclusive loyalty subscription featuring the debrief podcast of each episode and bonus Q&As from Patreon members like this. Is there a motto that you love? Like, we love our quotes, we love our mottos. Is there something that you like to use um, that sort of sums up your outlook on life or something that's been sort of close to your heart? I say in all my talks, you got to want it more than you fear it. I think, like, what, what lies at the base of your ability to get through fear and reach your potential at whatever you want to do like any aspect of life whether it's to do with your your career your business your personal life your relationships your health like you've got to want what's on the other side of all those fears and apprehensions that are holding you back you got to want that more than you fear it so it's like a question of motivation so figure out how to motivate yourself because uh often that road's tough so Figuring out how to motivate yourself is a, is a good one. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.